0: Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week it's my great privilege to welcome the Auden scholar Edward Mendelssohn, who has been the executor of W.H. Auden's estate and has been working in a deep scholarly way on the great poet for more than 50 years. He's just reached what is sort of, in a sense, the summation of his work on Auden, with the publication of the final two volumes of his complete W.H. Auden, which are the poems, W.H. Auden Poems Volume 1 and Poems Volume 2 from Princeton University Press. Edward, congratulations and welcome.
1: Warmest thanks, and I'm very glad to be here, Sam.
0: Now, as I say, you have been working closely and deeply on Auden for more than half a century. I mean, I, you know, as a schoolboy falling in love with Auden, it was your selected poems of W.H. Auden, like old Faber, russet-coloured paperback that was my way in. And can you tell me what sustained that fascination, that that attention that you've given Auden for quite so long?
1: Well, it's more or less the same thing that keeps me teaching a course on Virginia Woolf every year and writing essays on Virginia Woolf all the time. When you hang around a genius, you you pick up good ideas. You pick up ways of thinking. I had friends who wrote about Ezra Pound, when they were writing their dissertations. And when they got to the age of 40, they said, I never want to read a word of him ever again. And the sense of that there were diminishing returns. You simply, you hang around Auden or you hang around Virginia Woolf and you keep seeing something new about the world every time, as well as admiring the the technique, the skill, the wit, the generosity. There's something inexhaustible about, about some writers, and Auden seems to me to be one of them that's a short answer, but I, it, it sums it up.
0: Well, it's, it's extraordinary that you have, you know, backed the right horse and found him inexhaustible. You know, I can think of examples of
1: biographers who turn on their subjects
0: after a couple of years in that way. I mean, you, you met Auden, didn't you? And can you tell me a little bit about your, your personal encounter with him, what you remember of, of meeting Auden? Because you were very young,
1: weren't you, when you did? This is, um, it's a less interesting story than it should be. When I was an undergraduate, and I was about 20 years old and I was writing poems, more or less stopped writing poems when I started reading Auden. It was I liked writing poems when I was reading Louis McNeese because I thought I could do something like that. And I started reading Auden and realized I could never do anything like that. But a professor said that he holds office hours in his Greenwich Village flat and you can just call him up and invite yourself over. And so I did that and one point, just rang up and invited myself over at 5 p.m. And he handed me a martini that made the room rotate slightly. And he was the ideal generous teacher. He had prepared speeches that he would make for the, the shy visitor. And after an hour, he ushered me out. And I all I remember of his conversation was things that I then saw in print a couple of months later, and that was the last I saw of him for a couple of years. Then I started collaborating with a man, a librarian in the UK, who had made a bibliography of Walden's work, B.C. Bloomfield, and I started collecting, started Xeroxing his essays. And a few years later, I was teaching at Yale and Yale would invite famous figures to come up for a weekend And I got the job of chaperoning Auden and took him around to various places, made a recording. And I'd heard that he was saying things like, I want to put together a collection of my essays, but I've forgotten what I've written. And he sure enough said that to me. And I muttered something about how I had them all in my apartment. And I took him over to my apartment, left him there for a few hours with these folders of Xeroxes and came back, and he was obviously delighted that somebody had actually taken this kind of trouble and told me about an unsigned piece that he had written for the TLS and said he would have to come back to look at the essays. Anyway, a couple of years went by, and he wrote to me and said that he was going back to England, couldn't come up to New Haven to look at the essays. Could he send me a list of the essays he wanted Xeroxed, and could I hire a graduate student to make copies for him? And at that point, Auden was clearly, he was still deeply intelligent, but there was sort of a lack of of force and energy in his work towards the end that made me think that he was going to forget about some really great essays. So I wrote a letter saying, you know, of course, you know, I'd be happy to make the list for you, but if there's any chance you could come up to New Haven and see these essays, I would be grateful because I wrote something to the effect of their essays of yours, which you may have forgotten, to which I am grateful. So he wrote back saying, I've decided you should make the selection and not me, and gave me a check for $150 to pay for Xeroxing. And I jumped up and down a few times and read all of his work and took the list down to him a week later of essays that I thought he should include. And he looked at it and said, that's very good. I'll take out this, 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 and this, and this, and I'll put in that, 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 and that. Basically, he got his own his own collection. And I think the most telling moment then was when he said, uh, why didn't you include my essay on Romeo and Juliet? Which is a clever essay, but it's not one of his greatest ones. And the, the choices of answers were, you know, master, every word you write is worthy to be engraved in gold, but there just isn't enough gold. Or the answer, which I did give, which was to shake my head, no. And he beamed it was clear that he what he valued was somebody using their judgment and making a kind of decision. And a few weeks after that, he sent me a letter. He was in Austria saying, would you be my literary executor? And those were essentially my meetings. I visited him in Austria the summer after he asked me to be his literary executor. And he said, I'm working on or I'm planning a new collection of my poems, and it will include this, 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 and this. And I was taking notes on this. And it was clear he hadn't done any work at all, but he was planning for the future. He was, he was giving me instructions about what to do as his executor.
0: And did you sense then that this was, this was going to be a life's work?
1: Probably not. At that point, I wasn't thinking about making a complete edition or anything of this sort. I thought the job would be to put out an edition of his poems and let his literary agents deal with things and his terrific publishers at Faber no, this, this didn't seem to me to be something that I was going to be spending all my time on. And in fact, I haven't spent all my time on it. Part of the pleasure of it is that it, it helped me get a decent job in a university where I had time to work on other things.
0: Yeah. Now, the Auden you describe here in his late time, you know, he's, he's kind of curating himself a little, isn't he? He's interested in, you know, selecting these editions and putting his work out. And he also revised and revised and revised through his life. I mean, this must have been an extraordinary challenge when putting these editions together that sense of which bloody version do you use?
1: Now, actually, he gave excellent advice on this. He and I were talking about works of his that had not been published or collected. And I said at one point, what should I do with Paul Bunyan, which was the operetta that he wrote with Benjamin Britten in 1939 and 1940, and which had never been printed. And he thought and he said, you must use your judgment and left it at that. And then, as you know, he revised his poems and rejected and the the most notorious instance is September 1st, 1939, that wildly popular poem which Auden once wrote. He allowed it to be reprinted if the editor would include a note saying that Mr. W.H. Auden regards this poem as trash, which he is ashamed to have written. (laughs) uh, Very
0: flamboyant.
1: And I asked him, what should I do with September first, nineteen thirty-nine? A poem that he had revised and then rejected, and he said, "I don't want it reprinted during my lifetime." That was a very clear instruction. In other words, I'm I'm not giving you any rules about what to do after my death, but he did make clear that he didn't want to profit from it.
0: That's he thought it was dishonest, didn't he? I mean, I I think in your essay on Orden and God, you say that tweak, the famous line, "You know, we must love each other or die." Becoming, we must love each other and die. Was a theological change rather than a political one? Is
1: that right? Oh, absolutely yes. I mean, this is—I'm going to get into editorial minutiae here. Please do. Auden had a very bad habit of using semicolons to indicate what, in ordinary usage, the colon means—introducing the next idea that follows on the idea you just said. In September first, nineteen thirty-nine, he has the stanza that says. Hunger allows no choice to the citizen or the police, Semicolon, we must love one another or die. Now, he had been writing in the 30s that hunger and love were appetites, that you didn't have any choice over them, that that love forced you to do something. He also said the opposite. But the idea that, that somehow love is not a matter of choice struck him as an outrageous falsehood within a year after this. In other words, that you either choose to love or not love, that you can't simply say, well, it was my appetites. When Auden was rejecting this line, he was doing something in effect, and I'm improvising this as we're talking, so I may not know whether I believe this after we're finished, but I think it's right. Very Auden-esque. He was rejecting the same fallacy, which is everywhere in our culture, which is that neurobiology explains who you are rather than your personal history and your personal choices. In other words, since love and hunger are appetites, we must love one another or die, Later on, he wrote in a later poem, First Things First, he ended by writing thousands of without love, not one without water. It's a clear rejection of what he had said in September 1st, 1939. It's theological and moral in Auden's sense. I mean, all of Auden's theology was was moral in talking about what it means to perform certain actions, what it means to hold certain beliefs. And the poem, September 1st, 1939, I'm not letting you get a word in, I realize. No, I'm, I, I'm enjoying it. Keep going. <laughs> is the tremendous lie at the end of the poem. And this is a poem I know by heart and which I recite to myself as I walk down the street because it's so magnificent. But it's still, it's got a real lie in it. Up to the last stanza, everybody has faults, has selfishness, has egoism, has the impulse to do in their private life what Germany was doing in the public world, out of the mirror they stare is one of the lines imperialism's face and the international wrong. And then at the end he starts talking about the just who exchange their messages and say, may I compose like them of heroes and of dust and so forth, beleaguered by the same negation and despair, show an affirming flame. Well, where did these just come from? The whole poem has been saying, there are no such human beings as the just. And then they come suddenly, they pop up at the end of the poem, as something that's going to save us. In other words, somebody else who's going to, to save
0: like us. Deus ex machina.
1: Yes, exactly. You know, and Auden just hated this idea that somebody else might do it for you. Yeah. I mean, he came to hate the idea. And I think he felt that he was doing harm to other human beings by presenting these ideas in a memorable way that would encourage them to believe what, without the beautiful music of the poem, they would know to be untrue.
0: Yeah. Just briefly to stay on this question, revisions, one of the joys of this book to me has been, of your edition, has been realising that I'd got something quite wrong, which is I had always thought that Auden revised himself and made himself worse in that, Mm -hmm. for example, Lullaby, The Hermit's Sensual Ecstasy, Mm-hmm. I always thought was a revision from Carnal Ecstasy, which seemed to me better, or in in memory of W.E. Yeats, what instruments we have mm-hmm. is better, it seems to me, than, oh, all the instruments agree. Yes. But it seems that certainly my preferred versions were the later ones. Did he unfailingly revise himself and improve himself, or do you sometimes shake your head and go, Christ, he's blown that poem? I, I
1: have to preface this by saying, an editor's first principle has to be that the genius is more likely to have got it right than I do. So if I think he got it wrong, I'm probably the one who's in the wrong, even though I'm convinced that that I think he he got it wrong. Yeah, there are places where I think he followed rules in revisions that made things worse. There's a, a poem about the Chinese soldier in the In Time of War sequence that became Sonnets from China. Something like, under a padded field, he turned to ice rather than he closed his eyes because Auden wanted to get the rhyme right. But it's hard to measure these things. You can't count these things. A great many of his revisions are real improvements. they a poem that, that I love deeply, Out on the Lawn, I Lie in Bed, in, in a very early poem. As a line in the first version which says, the drowned voices of his parents rise in unlamenting song. And he revised that to, The drowned parental voices rise in unlamenting song. The rhythm is so is so improved. Yeah. And that sort of thing is going on all over. I think I'm not being simply being polite, but it shows how good your judgment is that you recognize these these improvements that he that he made in so many poems.
0: I mean, that extraordinary, you know, you mentioned first, you know, in September 1931, 1939, that the rhythm, the, the music of the poem, you know, allows it to carry a sort of contradictory or, you know, dishonest meaning, as Auden came to see. And again, as you described there, this absolute mastery of technique, you know, his ear was astonishing. And what are get sort of two related questions? One of them is, what did form, in your view, mean to Auden? Because it's something that he almost never quite abandoned. And the other one is, do you get the sense with Auden sometimes that, you know, his musical fluency is such that it sometimes takes the driving seat where, if you like, sense or the arguments, because he was interested in making arguments, interested in saying things about the world, kind of found itself, if you like, a passenger.
1: You are are putting into words Auden's own judgment of himself. There's a a late poem called Ode to Terminus, in which he ends, and I may be getting the quotation wrong, abhorred in the heavens are those something poets who, to wow an audience, utter some resonant lie. And the phrase, by the way, utter some resonant lie has the same rhythm as show an affirming flame. I think he's making the echo there of the the resonant lie. He he knew that he could do anything, rhythmically and metrically, and the temptation was exactly, as you said, to, to let that happen. I think there are poems in which he in which he did it's hard for me to pick out one in which he let them happen because the more you look at them, the more you, you see that the sense actually comes through and the, the deeper meanings are coming through. But he I'm going to swerve to answer this question. I think Auden had a strong sense that it is a temptation for a poet like himself to set himself up as an authority, as a moral authority. And just a quick parenthetical story I Towards the end of Auden's life, he gave a talk at some small group of scholars and writers in New York. And an older woman in the audience, a German refugee, got up in the question period and said, why don't you lead us, Mr. Auden, the way you did in the 1930s? Why don't you lead us again? And you could see the look of shame on his face. He wanted to sink through the floor at the idea that he could lead anyone at all. I think he sometimes emphasizes his pleasure in making the object to make clear that these are objects. These are not teachings. These are things that he's offering to you to think about and to enjoy, but there's no way that he is an authority in what he's saying. I hope I'm making some sense of what this idea is. Yeah, There's an example. I, mean, I noticed this in the poem Knowns, the poem about about the crucifixion, the hours, the three hours after the crucifixion. It's one of the greatest poems he ever wrote. It's deep, it's moving, it's sort of staggering in its depth. And there are lines like like this one, it says, in talking about the crowds that gather to, to watch something disastrous like the crucifixion, every crowd that gathers when something, when something is to be felled, sawn in two, torn through, torn apart. I stared at this for a while and realized that that line is a kind of counting game. The sawn in two is the second of the phrases. Hacked, sawed through, has three in it. Torn apart rhymes with four. Failed has an echo. It's one syllable and it contains the sound of first that he's putting in a little counting game in the middle. Later on in that poem, he's talking about the sense of desolation you have after performing some evil action. He writes, we are, we are left alone with our feet, F-E-A-T. And uh, Auden's always writing about suffering from corns, and in one meeting with him, this was in those days in New Haven, I said, was left alone with our feet upon, and he looked at me as if, you know, how could you be such a fool? And said, of course it is. In other words, we are left alone with our F.E.A.T. and feet. He wants to be comic in a way to discourage you from taking the magnificent work as somehow as indicating his own authority over the way in which you think. I hope I'm getting that complicated point across.
0: Yeah, no, I think you do very well. That kind of tension in his work between, if you like, the sort of Vartic, yes. style and that debunking kind of humor. I mean, I'm interested also in how you see the tensions work which perhaps is something that changes over the course of his career between the sort of abstract and the particular, you know, the abstract insight and the carnal ecstasy, the, the sense that he he loves. He's very at home with, you know, the grand theories of, you know, certainly in his early career, Marx and Freud and, you know, these sort of big ideas, but it, he's really always grounding it in bodies and in the particular and in, you know, the fallible and with a crooked neighbour, you know.
1: I think you... What you said is basically define the special kind of genius that, that Auden has. And I think some other writers, I think Beckett has it, Virginia Woolf has it. And that sense that the grand idea is a distraction from any real responsibility, from any real action in the world. He has a late poem called No Plato No" about how how boring it would be to be a disembodied spirit. You know, I'd much rather have, have a human body. And he's constantly writing poems that address that address the body, and this is one of the startling things for anyone who's taken philosophy courses in college, he's constantly talking about, not constantly, but repeatedly talking about the way in which the body gets things right that human beings want to get things wrong. I mentioned that poem, Gnomes. It has a wonderful stanza about how our own wrong flesh may work undisturbed, restoring the order we try to destroy, the rhythm we spoil out of spite. The sense of, there's another poem that says you know, talking about the body and the other part of ourselves and says, is it our friend? And when I first read this, I expected the kind of nice heartwarming. Yes. You know, it is our friend and it helps us, but it actually, it says, is it our friend question mark? No, (laughs) that is our hope. And in other words, our hope is because we are so capable of doing awful things that our body might put things together. I think if people didn't have, this is me talking, but it's an ordinesque thought, I think, that if people didn't have bodies, marital arguments would never patch up. You know, you you just want to continue with your resentments forever. That the body is a reminder of a kind of reality.
0: Now, Auden has, as I, mean, I think you mentioned it in in your introduction to these editions, and and it's something that's in one of his poems. I can't now remember whether it's letter to Lord Byron or New Year letter. There's a kind of origin story to Auden yes. becoming a poet, isn't there? That's right. Can you tell us how that happened? And, and also, I'm curious... Do you quite believe his version of it?
1: It never occurred to me not to believe it, but let me see what what the answer might be. The origin story is this, is that Auden, when he was a child and up until about the age of, of 15 or so, thought he was going to be a mining engineer and he would construct the best possible mining machinery for lead mining in the north in his head and would imagine what the best lead mine would be. And as he said, describing this later on, there were occasionally moral crises. There were two pieces of equipment he could use for something. One struck him as more beautiful. The other one struck him as more efficient. And he realized he had to choose the more efficient. You can see the whole emotional connection with with other human beings and with the work of art in the background. And then when he was uh, talking to a friend, Robert Medley, who became a painter, Medley was surprised to learn that, that Auden took religion seriously, that he, he was raised in a, an Anglo-Catholic Anglican, but a very high Anglican household. And uh, Medley, who was the standard intellectual atheist, just out of embarrassment said, tell me, do you write poetry? And as Auden said, I didn't, but I knew immediately that this was my vocation. And he seems to have started writing poems within days. Sam, do you have any reason not to believe it other than native scepticism about? Well,
0: no, it's just that it seems, you know, for a person who, who was as, as serious about his vocation oh. lifelong, it seems a remarkably kind of whimsical moments Yeah. You know, oh, well, that's what I'll do for the rest of my life.
1: <laughs> I think speaking from personal experience, these great Rubicon experiences in which you change your life when you look back at them, the Rubicon turns out not to have been two miles wide, but six inches wide. In other words, you'd been building up to it all this time, and suddenly you make this decision and you realize how easy it was. This was what I really was interested in before. Waden said that he was always interested in language, that if a if one of his relations mispronounced a geological term, he would be kind of furious and contemptuous. And There's some clear sense of language. I think he was thinking of words as building up large systems in the way that his mining engineering was something to build up large systems. I certainly see your point, but in the absence of, you know, as Sherlock Holmes says when you have eliminated the impossible, the improbable, whatever remains however improbable must be the truth. I can't do any better than that. It seems it seems to work.
0: Well, no, it's fair enough. I was just curious as to your view on that, but now he did set about. I mean, I'm reminded of the Sylvia Plath line about only left myself what a poet I would thrash myself into. He really did sort of thrash himself into being a poet. And I, I can't remember where I've read this because it's so long ago, but that in his late teens, am I right in remembering that he's every single day he would make himself write one thousand or two thousand words or the equivalent in poetry. You know, he he kind of apprenticed himself. Is that right?
1: I don't think so. Ah. I mean, I think. I think this may and again I could be utterly wrong I keep thinking you know there's something completely new in Auden, and ordinary. I find it's on page 276 of a book I wrote 30 years ago <laughs> and Steven Spender said that he wrote a poem every day or something of this sort I'm doing this from this is decades of memory said something like oh well I write one every month or something of this sort
0: ah oh. God, maybe I've never got a muddle with Spencer. That would be embarrassing.
1: <laughs> it's possible you've got Spender in there. Auden did say later on, he did say that if I don't write something every day I feel ill. But that was in his in his twenties or thirties. Yeah.
0: Now I'm interested in looking a bit at where Auden's reputation stands. It's been I think it's been said again, now my memory is going to be shaky, that Auden was the first poet who was completely at home in the twentieth century. Do you think that's that's
1: right? I wrote that. You wrote that? Ah, good. Well, I'm glad at least that, that's something I've remembered right. <laughs> I wrote that. In, that's the first line in the introduction to that selection that you had. I don't know if it's true. I mean, he certainly did not feel at home in the 20th century later on. But I think when in his 20s, he certainly responded to a new media, to new developments, to new ideas without any nostalgia For a lost past. In other words, one thing striking about people who get called the great modernists, Eliot and Pound, for example, and Yeats, is that they don't really like being modern. Modern to them means we've lost everything that was worthwhile and we're stuck in this terrible modern world. And there's Auden going off flying in airplanes, working in documentary film, as he says in a late poem to his body that he damaged his body by smoking he said, but if I had been born later, I would have mischief you, meaning his body, with a needle. In other words, he would he would have taken on whatever the bodily vice and addiction of the times were. So he really did seem to dive into contemporary culture with an enthusiasm that, that basically no one else had.
0: Do you look at, obviously, having just prepared this you know, in lifelong edition of the poems, do you have a sense a particularly sort of strong sense of a shape to his career? I mean, is the divide that I think some people make between kind of the English Orden and the American Orden, that, that move during the war, is
1: that the big hinge? Well, it's, it's certainly a convenient one. It corresponds in the English and American part, maybe the least important part. What may be the most important is in 1939, his discovering that he wanted some kind of absolute and... It's not a return to the religion of his childhood, because he had no supernatural beliefs at all ever in his adult life, but a feeling that he lived in a world of moral necessity, that the commandment to love your neighbor is something that is is a reality in the universe. I hope I'm making some kind of sense about this. There's a passage in Wittgenstein, which I wouldn't have known about if if Auden hadn't quoted it, but Wittgenstein writes that, that ethics ought to be understood as a condition of the world-like logic. And so Auden, you know, he looked around at Hitler and saw that there was nothing in his own intellectual life that could let him say why Hitler was wrong. And it was only something that, using the word in the vaguest possible way, some religious sense of, of good and evil, would let him say that what Hitler was doing was evil. That's certainly the big change. I mean, that certainly is a shape but there's also, I'm rambling on about this, a way in which about every 10 years, Auden decides to remake himself. So he goes to Italy in 1948 to get in touch with the world of the body. And then he goes to Austria 10 years later in 1957 to get back into a world of of the inner life of the Gothic, what he calls the Gothic North. And then at the very end, he goes back to Oxford. There's some sense of recovering the Englishness of his his early years. So there certainly are periods that seem to me to be real in the way most of our lives we muddle along and simply do the next thing that happens. But there's Orton saying, I'm done with that. I'm now going to do something else.
0: And that thing of his religion, which you know, even before he, as it were, formally came back into the Anglican communion, I don't know whether you'd agree with this, but I get a sense that those poems, even if Christianity isn't directly there, it leaves a kind of, you know, wily coyote having run through a brick wall shape. Mm-hmm. That that you know the way he uses luck, for instance, as cognate with grace, and you know that that he's sort of more of a religious poet all through his career than I think most people would think of him.
1: I would agree with you, not, you know, if I could agree more than a hundred percent, I would. It's um, that all the poems in the thirties when he thinks he has no religion, use religious vocabulary, religious ideas, ideas of grace. The poem "As I walked out one evening where the clocks say, you shall love your crooked neighbor with your crooked heart. He's simply explaining the commandment to love your neighbor. It's not a, not a contradiction at all. Over and over again, there's a Christian vocabulary. And one thing, for example, Musée des Beaux-Arts, the poem about the fall of Icarus, he's got the Christian story in the background. There's a reference to the miraculous birth at some point, and then the dreadful martyrdom. And then he talks about the how the plowman might have heard the abandoned cry, which is an allusion to Christ's last word on the cross. Well, you know, Father, why have thou abandoned me? The structure of his thinking was always Christian. And I think what he was trying to do was a, avoid the kind of superstition that was part of his his mother's, not quite superstition, but the the sense of, I'll get this sentence right. What I think was wrong for him in his mother's religion was that it used incense and music to make the point that you should make by yourself with a moral choice to love one's neighbor or not love one's neighbor.
0: I mean, maybe he's so accessible to the non-religious because his religion kind of almost his version of Christianity kisses humanist ethics very closely, doesn't it?
1: It's absolutely identical. I was writing a piece about the American critic Dwight MacDonald who hated religion, and they both think exactly the same way. Also, Virginia Woolf, I find that I can jump between Virginia Woolf, who hated religion, but thinks religiously about the value of things, if that makes some kind of sense. In other words, Auden, I think, liked being in touch with a community that extended across time because he was inherently a deeply lonely man. And to have the church was something very important to him in a way that it might not have been had he been less lonely.
0: That question of of loneliness, I mean, he had for a long time, as we know, a kind of companionate marriage in a way to Chester Coleman. What was his attitude over the years to his own sexuality? And how, how was that bound up with his religious
1: feelings? This partially depends on whom he's talking to. One point about Auden is that Auden is never a self-enclosed thinker. He's always what he says, always as is in part a conversation with an imagined reader or with a real person. So it's not he's not the American who goes out to the territory like Huck Finn and, and is all alone. So when he's talking to friends who take their religion seriously, his sense about his homosexuality is that he regards it as sinful because the church regards it as sinful. But Auden would also say that he believes in in many Christian heresies, like the patropassionist heresy, which sounds obscure, but the one in which the father suffers on the cross with the son. And Auden is always adjusting his religious thinking to to human reality. I'm trying to say six six things at once. Let me try to divide it into, into numerical things. It was very important to Auden to think that the quality of the relation was what mattered and not the category of human beings you were in relation to. So he writes about the marriage of Verlaine and Rambeau early on in 1939. For Auden, the marriage is... A faithful relation between two persons. It has nothing to do with the categories that the two persons belong to. In that case, homosexuality, a homosexual relation can be a means of loving someone else. But he would also believe that there was something inherently crooked about it. And he does have the curious passages in which he talks about how all homosexual relations have the quality of, of magical substitution. In other words, that the partner either represents one of your parents or one of your siblings. And what's so strange about his saying this is that he knows perfectly well in other essays that all sexual relations have magical substitutions involved, that there's no direct connection between human beings. I know I'm talking my way, long way around this. He describes himself in many essays as an ordinary sinner. So, Lust and gluttony are, and pride are, are three, three of the sins that he practices. He doesn't pretend that when you identify yourself as a member of a Christian church, you stop sinning. Yeah. He always has some complicated feeling about his own sexuality, always some sense of guilt. And I suspect, and again, this is, I hope I'm not second guessing the genius, sometimes he underestimates the guilt that everyone feels about sexuality and localizes that it's somehow especially homosexual guilt. At other times, he recognizes that all, all sexual actions have magical substitution and moral complexities involved. There's no simple answer to that question. He did, I'll just add one, one striking detail. In the mid-40s, he had what was clearly a love affair with a woman among his friends, Rhoda Jaffe, And he has a list in one of his notebooks of people he fell in love with. They're clear, not people he had sex with, people he fell in love with. And she's the last one on the list after Chester Coleman. And later on, I think part of his motive, I'm guessing at this, was to tell himself that his sexuality was not somehow a curse. In other words, homosexuality was not a curse. It was something he was choosing rather than was given to him. This is not a a position that I think is that one wants to hold in ordinary life now or even then. But I think he was asserting his own some kind of freedom, his ability to love others. Later on, he said to a friend of his that his relation with Rhoda Jaffe was a sin. And this is quite striking. In other words, the heterosexual love relation was sinful because it was unequal. He could not have the same bodily desire for her that she could have for him and that an unequal love like that is sinful and, I'm exaggerating here, not quite exploitative, but the inequality of it is something that struck him as all wrong.
0: Well, he does have that line, doesn't he? If equal love there cannot be, let the more loving one
1: be me. Exactly right. In other words, and that didn't occur to me until you said this, that that may have been written while thinking about, in part, thinking about his relation with Rhoda Jaffe.
0: Now, looking at the the standing of Auden now, I would say when I was at school, you know, when I when I first came to Auden myself, I don't know 30 years or whatever it is ago he seemed to absolutely tower over the landscape as mm-hmm. you know, second probably only to Eliot as the great poet of the 20th century Do you think he's still got quite that reputation? I mean, I, I sort of see if you like, Larkin everywhere, mm-hmm. Auden somehow a little less so. I don't know, we'd have, maybe have to ask people in their 20s What's your sense of how his reputation has held up?
1: Again, since since I when I do the web search, I look for Auden and I don't look for Larkin and Eliot, so of course I see him everywhere. I'm not sure that public standing matters as much as the intensity that individual readers have. In other words, you know, this is not a matter of marketing. This is a, an anecdote that works its way around the subject. The, you know, I was talking to a postdoctoral student a few years ago. And something came up and, and she said, "Well, we don't believe that anymore, meaning we English academics and I said, "I know we don't believe it anymore, but do you believe it?" and she said, "'Of course I do, doesn't everyone <laughs> so there's a, I think there's a real difference between public standing and what it means in someone 's heart i can't I have no way of judging public standing. you know what you say, I believe it's probably right, yes <laughs> you're going to see Larkin everywhere, but I'm trying to say, I can't get into other people's heads, so I don't know how strongly they feel about, about individual authors. I've just, I just wrote a piece about a review of a book about the arrival of, of modern art in America. And it was, it's a terrific book called Picasso's War by Hugh Aiken. And what's so striking about it is that it, it makes clear how much these general reputations are the products of publicity campaigns, more than personal reactions. So that you may be more moved by Matisse than you are by Picasso, but you you know that in the public world, Picasso is the greater figure. Which one matters more? That's a rhetorical question. Yes.
0: <laughs> Let's go to personal reactions. I mean, I wonder, do you have a kind of period or poem as someone in, who's sees Auden more in the round than probably anybody else on the planet? Do you have a favourite period or poem or something that really speaks to you? And I should say as an obverse of that, is there any of it that you think's downright bad? I'd say I couldn't get on with the Clary Hughes, but I don't think I can get on with anyone's Clary Hughes.
1: It's usually the one I happen to be reading. One thing that struck me while well, putting together that edition, I went through it chronologically. And at each stage, I thought, this is the best, except maybe for the last book where I could see a decline into repetitiousness. John Fuller once pointed out that every book of Auden's got reviewed by people saying, it's not as good as the the last one was the best one. Hmm. And so it's really hard to say. The ones that that move me most, that I have in my head, really from the entire career. I think he wrote some staggeringly great poems towards the end. The one called River Profile, in which he summarizes a whole bodily and social life in in about 10 stanzas. It makes me burst into tears every time I read it. And he wrote it within three or four years of, of his death. I'm avoiding answering the question because there is no answer to that. I mean, the answer is going to be what I'm reading today.
0: There's extraordinary detail which I hadn't known that Look Stranger, which is one of the you know most sort of iconic of Auden's titles, was chosen for him by accident, essentially.
1: Yes, he hated it. And it was very clear it was one of these typical publishing fiascos in which Auden had sent to T.S. Eliot from Iceland some titles to use: The Island, It's Away. Either Elliot never got the postcard or the letter, or he ignored it and said that he and the directors of Faber put together this title. And Auden called it a bloody title, which Faber chose while I was away. He was still asking them to change it within three weeks before it was published when he got back from Iceland. He said, I realize it may be too late. But this is one of the ways in which something that gets into the public eye seems to to matter. There's this curious idea that somehow the reader knows more about the work than than the artist does. Clearly, the meaning of a poem, as Holden kept saying, is always some mutual relation between the reader and the writer. But that doesn't mean that the reader gets to decide that the title they know best is, is the best one.
0: Yeah, <laughs> well... Any readers listening to this, I very strongly recommend Edward Mendelssohn's W.H. Auden Poems, Volumes 1 and 2, which are magnificent works of scholarship, and as I hope this conversation will have indicated, are full of the good stuff. Edward Mendelssohn,
1: thank you very much indeed for your time. Sam, it was a great pleasure. Thank you very much.